welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. we were able to use blockchain, it would drastically increase the international transparency and oversight available of countries' nuclear programs. And that would enable us to increase trust and confidence that those programs were indeed being used purely for peaceful purposes. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lyndon Burford, a visiting research associate at the Centre for Science and Security Studies, as we explore the challenges of disarmament and how the ever-evolving world of blockchain may help to strengthen processes and arms control verification. In August 1945, the United States dropped atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the first and so far the only wartime use of nuclear weapons. Less than a year later, writing in the New York Times, Albert Einstein warned that unless humanity could abandon competition and secure cooperation, we face certain disaster from nuclear weapons. But today the world is geared more than ever towards nuclear competition. All nine of the world's nuclear-armed states are modernizing or expanding their nuclear arsenals, or both. Russia and the United States still have thousands of nuclear missiles on permanent high alert, so the world is never more than an hour away from massive nuclear war. Such a war would cause catastrophic humanitarian, environmental and economic impacts, not just in the countries involved, but around the world. And the likely secondary effects would include devastating global climate change and pandemics. Despite this, the nuclear-armed states spend over 70 billion US dollars a year on nuclear weapons. These states and their allies claim that they have to maintain the ability to threaten nuclear war, arguing that making nuclear threats as part of their deterrence practices ensures their national security and international peace. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has been at the centre of international nuclear politics since 1970, seeks to prevent the devastation of a nuclear war. The treaty doesn't outlaw nuclear weapons or deterrence, but it does oblige its members to work in good faith for nuclear disarmament. The five nuclear-armed states that are members of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States, claim that they are in full compliance with this disarmament obligation and that their goal is to eliminate nuclear weapons. But since all the world's nuclear-armed states are either modernising or expanding their nuclear arsenals, it's not clear how disarmament will be achieved. In international politics, there are currently two main theories competing on this point. The traditional approach to nuclear disarmament, favoured by the nuclear-armed states, is based on the idea that disarmament can only happen when the environment is right. The idea is that when the security environment improves and states no longer feel threatened, they'll be able to disarm. But this only explains when they might disarm, not when they will, or why they would disarm. After all, why would the nuclear-armed states disarm if it is true that their nuclear weapons keep them safe and ensure international peace? An alternative approach shifts the focus towards humanitarian values and norms. 
Supporters argue that to achieve nuclear disarmament, we need to prohibit and stigmatise nuclear weapons as inhumane and indiscriminate, like we have done for other inhumane and indiscriminate weapons such as landmines, cluster munitions, and chemical and biological weapons. The idea is that if nuclear weapons are no longer seen as having any legitimate purpose, policymakers will be forced to disarm. This idea is embodied in the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or Nuclear Ban Treaty, which entered into force in January 2021, after 50 countries ratified it. The Ban Treaty prohibits its members from having any involvement with nuclear weapons or deterrence, and requires them to provide support to the victims of nuclear weapons development, testing and use around the world. The nuclear armed states and most of their allies either ignored, boycotted or actively sought to prevent the Ban Treaty, partly because they claim it undermines the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So the question is, where to from here for nuclear disarmament? That's a complex political challenge and it won't be solved by technology alone. But one way that technology might help is in helping to build confidence in disarmament processes, for example, by using emerging technologies like blockchain to help verify that countries are living up to their disarmament commitments and obligations. Hello, my name is Aisha Khan and I'm co-host and co-producer of the War Studies podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lyndon Burford, a visiting research associate at the Centre for Science and Security Studies at King's College London. Linda's research focuses on the technologies and politics of nuclear disarmament, deterrence, arms control, and risk. In this episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the current state of the world and theories about how disarmament could look, with a special focus on opportunities for innovation and new technologies, including blockchain, that could help to strengthen disarmament and arms control verification. Lyndon, thank you for joining us for the episode today. In your introductory comments, you speak of the challenges we face in trying to advance nuclear disarmament. On the 22nd of January 2021, the Treaty Prohibiting Nuclear Weapons, or BAN Treaty, came into force, prohibiting its members from any involvement with nuclear weapons, and in the eyes of many, marking a victory for humanity. Yet this is by no means the end of the journey. Are you able to tell us what this treaty means for the world, and what has been achieved over the last few months since it entered into force? Thanks very much for hosting me, Aisha, and um, yeah, it's great to be here with you. So in terms of the Ban Treaty, I would say it is historic on a number of fronts. It's historic in political terms, in legal terms, and, and also in broader moral and ethical terms. So I'll kind of break those different categories down um, as we go here, but I really would like to just start by stepping back a little bit and, and providing a bit of context about why I make those, those statements so the first piece of context that I would say is it's really important to acknowledge, I think, that there is a nuclear crisis hiding in plain sight. So we hear a lot of people talk about the climate crisis and, and rightly so. But I think it's really important to say, like, if, if you care about climate change, then you should care about nuclear weapons. Because if you think about the, the climate crisis and the threat that it poses to humanity, it is an existential threat. It has the capacity to, to end the human race as, as we know it, but it's on a much longer time scale. And if you look at the, the nuclear crisis, as I you know, mentioned in the, the introduction, you know, we're only ever one hour away from full-scale nuclear war. And that war would be absolutely catastrophic in, in environmental terms and humanitarian and economic terms, but also its secondary effects 
would be catastrophic climate change. Coming back to this question about the, the ban treaty, and I said it's historic in political, legal, and, and moral and ethical terms. So in the political context, nuclear weapons are not a technical problem. They're a political problem, right? Like we like to think in our modern kind of techno-obsessed world that the solution to everything is, or we just need to invent a better technology and then we'll, we'll fix whatever that problem is. And actually, it's not clear that we can do that with nuclear weapons because what is a better nuclear weapons technology? Well, it's, you know, maybe one that's even more lethal or even more accurate. You know, and these are not solutions that we need. I also say that nuclear weapons are a political problem because they bring a whole lot of messy ethical and moral problems and questions with them. And you can't solve those messy ethical and moral problems with technology. Again, it's, you know, so the, so the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, when we say nuclear weapons keep us safe or ensure our security, what we're saying is that we are ethically okay with a situation where we are willing to threaten to annihilate hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And we're also willing to risk the end of the human race in the name of national security. And so what the ban treaty did that was politically historical was that it really shined a spotlight on these issues again in a way that we haven't for many years, for decades, in fact. And, and so what the ban treaty did is it re-highlighted those issues and it changed the dialogue. It said, we can't just talk about this in technical terms anymore because it's not a technical problem. We need to talk about humanitarian issues and the ethical issues that go along with that. In terms of your question of like what's been achieved in the last few months, well, that's an ongoing change that's happening. We're coming to look at this more in an ethical humanitarian sort of context the ban treaty was historic in legal terms because it was the first ever international agreement that just outright banned nuclear weapons. Now, I have to clarify, of course, that international treaties only apply to countries that sign them. So the ban treaty prohibits its members from engaging in any way with nuclear weapons and, or deterrence, and it, but it also it creates a positive obligation to provide support to all of the people around the world that have been negatively affected by, by nuclear weapons testing, development, nuclear mining, et cetera, related to, to the development of nuclear weapons. It's not just do no harm, it's actually go back and repair the harm that's already been done. I think it's really interesting to put the ban treaty into context, and it seems there's been a lot of support for it with 122 states voting the United Nations General Assembly to adopt the treaty and 51 governments having already ratified it. But that still leaves us with 150 governments who have either not signed it or not ratified it. Those who haven't include all of the nine nuclear armed states, China, France, India, Israel, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, the UK and the United States. This of course raises some doubts. So how much can the treaty really achieve without the nuclear powers and how will the treaty be enforced? So it's quite common among people that oppose the nuclear ban treaty to criticize the fact that it doesn't have verification mechanisms. So how can we verify that countries that join this treaty are actually doing what they say? And, and that relates to the question of enforcement. You know, if we can't actually verify what people are doing, how can we ever enforce the treaty? And so the first thing I'd say about that is like, there is a false narrative that somehow this makes the ban treaty different from what we have in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the truth is, we don't have that in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty either, precisely because under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, we've never managed to get multilateral disarmament negotiations that would lead to how are we going to verify this and how are we going to enforce this. 
And so in terms of the fact that the nine nuclear armed states have not joined, sure, that prevents the ban treaty from having an immediate effect in terms of reducing weapons numbers, et cetera, but it's the long game. The only way that we can find whereby countries will eventually be incentivized to disarm is by changing the way that these weapons are perceived and, and saying that they have no legitimate purpose, that due to their catastrophic humanitarian impacts, any use of them would defeat the whole purpose that, that they were being used for. Over time, even though these countries have said that they're not going to join the treaty now, that political narrative can have enormously important political impacts within those countries. And we're already starting to see this where a lot of opinion polling publics oppose them. They want to see disarmament. They want to see support for treaties like the, the nuclear ban treaty. And so in terms of what we've achieved so far, well, as I said, the, the ban treaty entered into force in January of this year after 50 countries ratified it. That's triggered the next step for the treaty, which is that I think it's in January 2022, we'll have the first meeting of states parties. And at that meeting of states parties, a whole lot more of the detail around what the operation of the treaty will look like. Countries can go along there and propose changes, amendments, improvements to the treaty. All of those types of details will start to be fleshed out. We've come a very long way in a short time, really. And we're looking forward at this point to the 10th review conference of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And then, as I say, into January of 2022, where we'll have the first meeting of states parties of the nuclear ban treaty. Some of the states who didn't sign have argued that nuclear weapons, as bad as they are, have been a key element in keeping global peace over the last 75 years. The UK, as mentioned, didn't sign and has recently made a decision to increase its nuclear arsenal, as outlined in the integrated review. What are your thoughts on that? There is, as you say, this, this idea that nuclear weapons, quote, keep the peace. If you look at the critical threats that humanity faces today, nuclear weapons are useless, just completely useless in, in terms of dealing with them. I mean, climate change, how do nuclear weapons help climate change? You know, mass migration as a result of climate change, how are nuclear weapons going to help us to deal with that? Global pandemics, again, useless. So all of these critical threats that are massive global threats that require massive global coordinated responses and cooperation, nuclear weapons are useless at handling them. And yet they cost us $70 billion a year at least. So there's all of these other things that nuclear weapons are not only useless in dealing with, they actively make it harder to deal with because they cripple our ability to cooperate. With regard to the UK Warheads decision, right, so the, the integrated review was just released and what they said as a portion of that review was that basically nuclear weapons guarantee our national security, they help to keep international peace, and for undisclosed reasons uh, that weren't really clarified in that, in that paper, we therefore need to increase the upper limit of the number of warheads that we'll hold in our, in our stockpile. So a couple of points about that. The first thing is, to me, this just goes back to the point, which is that nuclear deterrence and disarmament are fundamentally incompatible. They are mutually exclusive ways of understanding security in the modern world. We have this country that, that touts itself as a disarmament champion, and we want to move ahead with disarmament, and we're doing all this research around disarmament verification. But at the same time, we're increasing the upper limit on the number of stockpiles 
that we're going to hold in our arsenal. And we're not going to say why. And we're not going to say how we think our uh, potential adversaries like Russia and China might react to that. But the reality is we know how they're going to react to that. They're going to feel threatened, right? They're going to see a greater threat from the UK. And what's going to happen? We're going to end up back in a cycle of mistrust that leads to nuclear arms racing. And that's not a prediction. That is an observation of what's already happening. We already find ourselves in a new nuclear arms race, but people are not acknowledging it. For the moment, it's, it's mostly a qualitative arms race, but actually we're starting to see signs, for example, in the UK integrated review decision that it could become a quantitative nuclear arms race where states start saying we need not just better nukes, we need more nuclear weapons. And so with regard to that decision, it just demonstrates that the claims about disarmament are fundamentally incompatible with the actual policies. The UK and the world's take on security is really fascinating. So as much as international law is changing the global security environment, so is technology. And available technologies can provide opportunities for innovation to help strengthen things like the Non-Proliferation Treaty and Ban Treaty. Blockchain may just pave the way forward in this area. Are you able to tell us why blockchain was first explored in this context and why it stands out? Yes, it's a great question. So blockchain is the technology that underlies Bitcoin. A lot of people have probably heard of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin or Ethereum. It has a bunch of applications that are much, much broader than just cryptocurrencies. It can be used for a whole range of different areas. And in fact, it already is. And one of those areas is in nuclear safeguards. So the International Atomic Energy Agency is the, the international agency that's tasked with verifying that countries' use of nuclear energy and, and nuclear technology is purely for peaceful purposes. It's being used in that context because blockchain is a tool for managing data in a cryptographically secured way that creates a permanent record of events, a permanent record of developments and technological information changes. And so the three best examples of the use of blockchain in, in the case uh, of the nuclear world in terms of the most practical applications to date, and these are still prototypes, but Australia, the United States, and Finland have all stood up public-private partnerships. So it's private research firms or universities working with the government authorities in order to use blockchain to track nuclear materials. The most advanced of these was just launched last year by Finland. And it's basically a system which uses blockchain to track nuclear materials across the full spectrum of activities in the countries. And it's really incredible because it radically increases the efficiency and effectiveness of that safeguard system, but it does it in a technologically fundamentally different way to the old school system. And what it means is that whereas previously all of the people in that chain, so from you know the importers of nuclear material or people manufacturing different types of product with it, people using it, um, storing it, et cetera, they would all report upwards to a national authority. And then that national authority would report upwards to the International Atomic Energy Agency. And what blockchain creates is the technical ability for all of those transactions to be monitored in real time in a highly secure, cryptographically sealed way that means that you can compartmentalize who has access to which bits of the information. And then also what that enables is that if Finland chooses to, they can just say not only can the national regulator have oversight in real time over all of those activities and who's got what material, et cetera, they can simply grant the International Atomic Energy Agency access to that real-time oversight. 
And so what that would do if we were able to use blockchain in this way, it would drastically increase the international transparency and oversight available of countries' nuclear programs. And that would enable us to increase trust and confidence that those programs were indeed being used purely for peaceful purposes. Over time, we could develop this technology and see how it might apply to improve confidence in disarmament processes as well. So that's, I think, an area that deserves further investigation and, and people have started to look at that in other areas and something that I'm certainly interested in continuing to explore. In reducing nuclear risks, the verification of dismantling nuclear warhead can create large volumes of sensitive data. This is often generated from inspectors that will need to record the status and location of warheads, details of on-site inspections, and the status of various facilities. This data then needs to be stored in a very secure and permanent manner with strict access controls. This sounds fairly straightforward, but there is a lack of sufficient trust between governments not to reveal the sensitive data collated. What is blockchain and how does it act to resolve this? As you say, there is, in the context of warhead dismantlement, there is a lot of sensitive data being generated. And so there's a lot of concern from governments, A, not to give away national security secrets, and B, they also have an obligation not to share information that might enable other countries to develop or consider developing nuclear weapons. So those are both really critical issues that that would need to be addressed in any disarmament process, but equally in any process that potentially involved uh, blockchain as a, as a way of managing that data. And so I think to your question, it raises the issue of what is blockchain <laughs> and how, how does it address these issues? So just a, a quick backgrounder on that. Blockchain, as I said, is a, is a system for managing data. It creates a permanent and cryptographically secured record of events in the order that they occur by packaging up blocks of data. So different events will be encrypted and then cryptographically represented and then packaged into blocks. And then those blocks are linked together in a chain. And that's where you get the word blockchain. And what cryptography is used to do in that process is to ensure that as each block of data is added to the blockchain, it is cryptographically linked to the block before. So you take all of your data, you run it through what's called a hashing algorithm that produces a string of numbers and letters that is a, a cryptographic representation of the data in the block. But that cryptographic representation is basically gibberish. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of ones and zeros and A's and B's and C's in a line. And so it's exceedingly difficult to take that cryptographic representation and reverse engineer the data that you started with. So by the time that data like that makes it onto the blockchain, it's not data in the sense that you would think of like, oh, it's the number of warheads or it's the type of material that was in that warhead. It's just a, it's just a bunch of gibberish. And, and so like cryptographic gibberish is one way to put it. It's also been through multiple layers of that. So you take each individual event, like say, for example, inspectors pull a warhead apart, right? And it has, say, four core elements. I'm making this up because I've never seen a nuclear warhead, right? But supposing it has several core elements and they split them into parts and then they register, right, there are four pieces here. That event would then, would first be encrypted by the inspectors on the scene. Once it's encrypted, it would be run through this hashing algorithm. And then it would be collected with other events that the inspectors have done, like other things they've inspected, other things they've helped to dismantle, whatever, they would be put together and run through a hashing algorithm again so that you've got these strings already that, that 
don't mean anything to the average person. You run them together, you run them again through a hashing algorithm. So you've been through these multiple levels of just hiding what the actual data is by the time it actually makes it to a blockchain. And then you just have one high level hash that represents all of that data. And when I say that a blockchain is permanent, uh, creates a permanent record, as I said, each of these blocks of data is cryptographically linked to the one before. And what I mean by that is once you've got all of the, the, the data in a block and you put a timestamp on it so you know exactly when these things happened, what day, what facility, you then take the entire block and you run it through the hashing algorithm again. And that subsequent hash that represents the entire block of data is then added into the next block. And so each of these blocks is cryptographically linked. Now, the importance of that in creating a permanent record is that say you have a disarmament process and you've been running it for two years and you've been progressively dismantling warheads and each time you do, you hash all of that data and you add it to the blockchain. If anybody tries to hack the blockchain and go back and say, do you know what, we wanna hide some warheads. So we're gonna go back to block number 340 where we declared that there were four warheads at this particular facility, right? We're gonna go back to that block and we wanna change it so that it says there were two warheads. And now we've got two warheads that don't appear in the official record that we can hide over here and we've still got warheads, right? Anybody that tries to go back and do that, they change a single bit of data. And when I say a single bit, I mean, they take a single zero and change it to a one. They take a single A from a hash and change it to a B. Every single piece of data in the blockchain after that point just turns up an error, 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 because the blocks are all cryptographically linked. And so what it creates is, a, I think the technical word is practically immutable. Like technically, if you had the most powerful supercomputers in the world and you turned them just to this problem, yes, you could hack the blockchain. That wouldn't enable you to secretly change things that happened two years ago. It would enable you to stop the blockchain from working now. So that's the kind of security that a blockchain makes possible in terms of data storage. And in a disarmament process, as I say, you are able to ensure that only countries that need to have access to specific types of sensitive information would have access to them precisely because the data is encrypted by the inspectors at the very start. And that becomes a process of them agreeing, you know, so it, it, it doesn't remove the need for human beings to agree during the actual dismantlement process. You still need human beings on the ground, inspecting weapons, visiting facilities, doing all of that kind of stuff. Once you have that level of agreement, it's, it's virtually impossible to, to go back and hack and change in secret. And so it creates that real sense of credibility for the data. It's a technological aid, but it doesn't solve the problem of trust. It doesn't solve the problem of needing that difficult political negotiation and, and cooperation to go on. We're all very aware that technologies can normally be compromised in one way or the other. Are there any drawbacks to using blockchain? Yeah, I mean, I think like any technology, it's best to look at what the challenge is that you face and decide whether or not the technology that you have is actually the right technology for the problem. There are situations where a blockchain is, is not the right solution for managing data because it's complex and you need, you know, cryptographic specialists and computer scientists and coders and you need a network of computers and it, it's time consuming. And, and so there may be situations where actually it's, it's overly complex and as people sometimes say in this field, like maybe a piece of paper and a pencil is a better solution to, to recording whatever the information is that you have, right? Another potential challenge is European law says that people have the right to be forgotten. And in some cases that include the right to have particular aspects of your data history erased from the public record. 
blockchain by its very nature aims to create a permanent record of data. So it bumps up against this issue of like, well, what is the permanent data that we are creating? What is the underlying data and, and does it want to be permanent? Or is it something that is actually better served if it's not permanent? So anywhere where you've got data where it's crucial that you have a record of it now, but you actually want that record to disappear for whatever reason, subsequently, that's that's not a good case for blockchain because by its very nature, it's, it's creating a permanent record. This technology is rapidly being adopted around the world in financial markets, in industry, in transport, in human rights. Uh, there's a real case to be made for human rights. So there's all kinds of really fascinating applications for this. And I think that in the nuclear world, we're, we're really playing catch up. We're, we're not used to innovating. As I said, we're, we're in a mindset where we're still you know, living with a technology that fundamentally hasn't really changed that much in 50 or 60 years. And yet the world around it is, is changing radically and rapidly. Going back to the very beginning of the podcast of what Einstein wrote in the New York Times, how might blockchain help us to facilitate international cooperation and abandon competition? Very good question. So one of the things that I like to think about is, is blockchain versus nuclear weapons. By their very nature, nuclear weapons are tools of mass violence. That's it. They're tools of mass indiscriminate violence. What blockchain technology is, is a data management tool that enables us to do highly efficient, transparent data management. And so it's a tool that enables mass human cooperation and coordination in a way that is more secure and more trustable, more credible than we've ever had before. That's not to say that it will be used for that, right? Again, it's, it's a technological tool, but what we do with it is a political and ethical question. I think that with the right political leadership, with the right social leadership, we could have some really important and powerful conversations about, uh, you know, sovereignty is evolving. If these, these challenges that we have around climate, around, um, you know, mass migration, around pandemics, et cetera, these are threats to humanity that don't respect sovereign boundaries. They don't care where your border is. You know, they don't care which language you speak. They're a threat to everybody. And so the solutions that we need to find to those threats are going to need us to identify more as humans rather than as national citizens. Blockchain more than ever before creates the potential for that type of transnational global coordination and cooperation. There's already a lot of research going on. For example, um, Oxfam just created a, a prototype blockchain whereby they take donations for specific types of aid work around the world and those donations are locked in a blockchain and then released when particular things happen. So there's an earthquake of a certain magnitude in a certain geographical area. I, Lyndon, could say in advance, allocate $1,000 to Oxfam and say, every time there is a, an earthquake of this magnitude in this area, I want $100 of that money instantly and automatically to be released to Oxfam to deal with it. I don't have to think about it anymore. And Oxfam in advance can look at the, at the ledger and say they know how much money they're about to get as soon as that earthquake happens because it's already locked into the blockchain. So there's all kinds of things like that that, that could really be helpful in terms of producing international coordination and cooperation around challenges that we face. The question is, do we have the political imagination? Do we have the willingness to ask the difficult questions about 
the moral and ethical implications of, of the choices that we're making at present and whether or not we want to change those choices. We're now going to move on to our feature section of the podcast, where we look at the individual behind the research and what compels them to explore their area of expertise. So Lyndon, with blockchain being a relatively new technology, how and why did you become interested in this field and resolving issues of nuclear disarmament with it? I think originally, like most things in life, right, it was word of mouth. I have a friend back in New Zealand, uh, Oliver Bruce who has been a bit of a crypto nerd for many years and has been sort of egging me on to get interested in blockchain for for a number of years and educating me along the way because of some of the quite dramatic changes that it enables in our societies and their structures. And so he was always saying to me, like, you you really got to get into this stuff. Like it's, it's important. It's important. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds really interesting, but I'm the nuclear guy, right? So I'm, I'm doing the nuclear, the nuclear disarmament stuff. Right. So and then just over time, I sort of learned more about it and learned about the types of coordination uh, that it creates in terms of data management and decentralized data management. And, and I started thinking, well, how, how does this relate to the work that I do and in, in my, my specialization in, in nuclear weapons and disarmament? And the obvious sort of wicked problem that we face in, in my field is, is how do you incentivize nuclear disarmament? How do you coordinate it? And the answer could be blockchain could help with that. So leading on from you marrying these two subjects together, are you able to tell us the best thing about researching this area and anything that's particularly surprised you? Yeah, I mean, there are so many great things about researching this area. The first thing is it's, it's absolutely fascinating, right? Because as humans, we only have the personal capacity to engage with and build integral relationships with maybe 200 or 250 other people. So every time that there's a larger society than, say, 250 people, we need systems to enable the members of the society to trust that they're going to be treated fairly when they're transacting or trading or whatever it is. As long as humans have existed, as long as you know, homo sapiens have existed, we've had to create centralized institutions in order to be that kind of trust layer that, that, that does the coordination, that holds the data, et cetera. So you know, financial data, it's banks. We have these centralized banks that have always held the data, managed it, kept the record. We trust them and therefore we can interact with people we don't even know because we both trust the bank, the banks in the middle. What's fascinating about this area is that blockchain makes all of those types of interactions possible without a centralized institution. And so basically what I'm saying is that it is mind-blowing the number of implications of this technology. So there's constantly something new to learn about and explore. I think the thing I've been most surprised by is just the scale, the scale and the speed of change. You know, like I got into this thinking, oh, this is really interesting and it could really have some important implications. And then the more that I look at it, the more I'm like, it's not that it could have massive implications. It already is. That's really interesting. And as well as your work at King's, you're also a blockchain advisor on the New Technologies for Peace Working Group as part of the Vaskin's COVID-19 Commission. What has this work entailed? The current Pope Francis is, I would probably describe as a, as a true social justice activist. There's a, there's a whole lot of issues on which uh, he's taken a really 
quite progressive position on social issues and has really pushed the Vatican as a body to up its game in a lot of different areas. And, and one of these is COVID. So the Vatican has created this COVID-19 commission, the idea being that as a global society, we desperately need a good global response, a coordinated cooperative global response to the pandemic. And basically, this is not the Vatican position. This is my reading of the situation, but basically nation states have not stepped up. We have reverted into nationalism, populism, you know, vaccine nationalism, et cetera, and played a blame game. You know, Trump famously called it the China virus, all of this type of stuff that is the very opposite of global cooperation. And so what the Vatican is trying to do is generate uh, a truly kind of global perspective on finding solutions that work for everybody, encouraging international cooperation. And that's the purpose of the, the COVID-19 commission. And, and their kind of core mandate is one, vaccines for all, two, work for all, because obviously there's you know been a terrible economic hit that people have taken around the world from responses to, to the COVID uh, pandemic, and three, food for all. Uh, within the COVID-19 commission, they've got this group called New Technologies for Peace. And the idea is there are a lot of people out there telling, telling stories about the horrors of new technology and how AI is going to do this, that, or the other, and all of these problems, drones or whatever it is. And the question that the group is asking is, okay, so where are the opportunities where these new technologies create the potential for good? And so that's the group, New Technologies for Peace. How can we use these new technologies to increase international cooperation, reduce the likelihood of conflict, and ultimately work towards a sustainable and more peaceful future? And so they have uh, asked me to come on board and, and talk to them about how, how blockchain might contribute to that vision, how I think that might look in terms of human rights, um, humanitarian assistance, climate responses, nuclear disarmament, which is an issue that is very dear to, to Pope Francis. That sounds like an amazing opportunity, but that's just one piece in the puzzle of your really interesting career path, which has included being part of the Lord of the Rings films. Can you tell us more about how you've come to be where you are today? Yeah, sure. So uh, very briefly, I did undergrad Russian and French. So my, my undergrad degree was, was Russian studies, Russian language, history, culture, film, etc. And that just fascinated me. So while I was doing an undergrad Russian degree, what I really got fascinated by as I was doing it was was film and theater. And so then I went to work in film and theater for a few years. And when I got home from university, it just happened that Lord of the Rings was being filmed. I mean, literally in my suburb in Wellington, uh, Peter Jackson, the director, is, lives just down the road from from where I grew up. And so I had already been doing a bunch of work, doing I was doing costuming work at the time, as well as working as an actor and, and sort of helping out with making short films and stuff. So I kind of bundled up a bunch of my costuming and I took it down to Weta Workshop, the Weta Physical, where they do all of the kind of monster effects and said, hey, you know, uh, I hear you guys are filming. How about you hire me? And it was just one of those like complete luck, right? Like right place, right time. They happened to be starting filming the next week with some massive scene where they needed thousands of extras and they needed a bunch of people to look after them all and they were like yeah great sure uh would you like to work and I was like yeah I really would so that uh that's how I ended up working on Lord of the Rings as a standby sort of working with the actors to do continuity and and blood and gore because that's the special effects that that Weta was doing so ironically my title on that 
on that film was an armor weapons technician. So my job was literally to build armor and weaponry for, for various different orc and elf armies, et cetera. And then somehow I moved from being an armor weapons technician to building a career around researching nuclear disarmament. Did a bunch of travel. I went and lived in Russia and in France and came back. And when I came back from my travels, I was looking around for, I guess at essence, the thing that inspires me personally is, is peace. I started looking into New Zealand's history of nuclear disarmament advocacy. And yeah, one thing led to another through a bunch of random accidents and, and happenstance. I became a nuclear weapons specialist. That's a perfect example of right place, right time. And finally, what's next for you? The more time goes by, the more interested I get in, in blockchain. I genuinely believe that this is a technology that could and probably will fundamentally change the way that we think about society and what it is and how we organize it. So it's quite likely that my research will be continuing to push in that direction. And most immediately in terms of that, I'll be you know doing some research as a part of the Vatican's COVID-19 commission on the new technologies for peace group. Uh, so I'll be looking at not just how blockchain could help to verify disarmament agreements, which is a core interest for the Vatican, but also how it might help to build global social cooperation on addressing the global threats that, that face us all that would enable, as I said, this, this sort of Vatican um, vision of vaccines for all, work for all and food for all. Thank you, Lyndon. It's been great having you on the podcast and exploring nuclear disarmament and the ever-fascinating world of blockchain. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much, Aisha. You have been listening to the War Studies Podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Aisha Khan and Danny McDivitt from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.